You're listening to Southside Baptist Church Podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website at ssbaptistchurch.com. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord Jesus. And in the power of your Holy Spirit, we praise you, dear Lord, that you are the great mediator the great interceder, dear Lord, the great high priest. And Lord, we thank you so much that you love us. We thank you that you have defeated the grave and that, Lord, you stand victorious and you hold the keys not only to the kingdom but even to death itself. Lord, we know that in a place like this, as we come together, there are many problems, many heartaches, many struggles in the lives of people. We pray, dear Lord, that we would all understand that the answer is only in Christ, in Christ alone. The world offers cheap substitutes. The world offers short-term satisfaction, but it does not last. Only is eternity held in your hand. And so, Lord, I pray that you would minister to each one of us today and pray for those who may be hurting. We pray for those who may even listen later on on the internet, dear Lord, on the website, that God, you would also speak to them. And I ask you, dear Lord, I've already asked you, dear Lord, that you would cleanse me, that you would use me today for your kingdom and to proclaim your word and we will give you the glory. You alone are worthy to receive the glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 27, we're going to look beginning at verse 1. Genesis 27, beginning at verse 1. And I want to go ahead right now and thank Alan last week for filling in, doing a great job. And since Gene and Janice McBride are standing up, we'll go ahead and stand in honor of God's Word. In a moment, I'll be referring or toward the conclusion of this message, kind of building on some things that I think Alan introduced to you last week. I've titled the message today, The Blessing. And uh, John Trent and Gary Smalley wrote a book years ago. Uh, In fact, I was in Zimbabwe as a missionary when I first read the book. The book was life-changing to me and caused me to do a lot of introspection, a lot of looking at my own life and asking some questions. Now, in the book, The Blessing, by John Trent and Gary Smalley, the book deals with the love and acceptance of your parents and how, if you have been robbed of that, how that may have affected your life. And today, we're looking at Genesis chapter 27, and the subject is simply The Blessing. Because I I wrote this down, often the failure to receive the blessing from your parents will result in brokenness, it will lead to feeling wounded, it will lead to a low self-image, it will lead to low self-worth, feelings of being unwanted, feelings of being unloved, void of intestinal fortitude, constantly needing affirmation from those in marriage, in your job, in your church. The blessing is critical. So in Genesis chapter 27, let's look at verse 1. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, 
he called for Esau, his older son, and he said to him, my son. Here I am, Esau answered. Isaac said, I am now an old man and I don't know the day of my death. Now then, get your weapons, your quiver and bow. Go out to the open country and hunt for wild game for me. Prepare me the kind of tasty food I like. Bring it to me so that I may eat and give you my blessing before I die. Now Rebekah was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. And when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and to bring it back, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, Look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, Bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so that I may give you my blessing. Now note she adds something here. In the presence of the Lord before I die. Now my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father just the way he likes it. Then take it to your father to eat so that he may give you his blessing before he dies. Jacob said to Rebekah, his mother, but my brother Esau is a hairy man and I'm a man with smooth skin. What if my father touches me? I would appear to be tricking him and would bring down a curse on myself rather than a blessing. His mother said to him, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say and go and get them for who? For me. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, dear Lord, that you love us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness and your mercy. We pray, dear Lord, that you would empower your word and the one who speaks it through your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Albert Barnes made this statement. He said the blessing was more than a pious wish of a pious man. It carried, now listen to this, it carried a prophetic note, destiny, a prediction as to the life of the one who was being blessed. In fact, if you look at Genesis 27 verse 4, Isaac says to, to Esau that my soul may bless thee before I die. John Phillips made this statement, and I agree with him. He said, this is the saddest chapter in the book of Genesis. Now, I want you to know something. When a biblical scholar, a theologian, a man who has studied this in the original language, in the original Hebrew, when a man makes that statement compared to Genesis chapter 3, that's a strong statement. But he says this, he says, this is the saddest chapter in the book of Genesis. And listen to what he goes on to say. And every personality in this chapter is doing the wrong thing. Today, I I want us to approach this chapter with a lot of caution, with fear and trembling. I want us to look at it verse by verse 
And then I want us to make some observations. So let's go back. Genesis 27, verse 1 and 2. When Isaac was old and his eyes were so weak that he could no longer see, he called Esau his older son and said to him, My son. And Esau said, Dad, here I am. Now, Ishmael has died. That is the, the son of Hagar and Abraham. And, and Isaac has taken care of the burial and the funeral of his brother Ishmael at 137. And so he begins to think about his own death. My dad, when my mom died, began immediately to think about his own death. Your mom may be doing that now. But my dad began to get all of his affairs in order, began to divide up, do whatever he was going to do, and to get everything in place, because I think when my mom died, it caused him to evaluate his life and to begin to realize that I may not have much longer. So Isaac, after he buries Ishmael, begins to recognize that his condition is not good. He's old, he's feeble, he's blind. And so he calls Esau because the elder son is the individual that in the Hebrew home, in the Jewish home, you'd bring in and he would be kind of the executor of the will. He would have power of attorney. And so he begins to get his affairs in order. Now look at verse 3 and 4. Isaac said, I'm now an old man, verse 2, and don't know the day of my death, verse 3. Now then get your weapons, your quiver and bow, go out to the open country, hunt some wild game for me, prepare the kind of tasty food I like, and bring it to me to eat so that I may give you what? So that I may give you the blessing. You see, in the Hebrew calendar, in the Hebrew home, meals were often brought into into a festive event. Even in the case of the Passover, you have kind of festivity, family gathering together, the Lord's Supper. We celebrate, we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ with the Lord's Supper. In heaven, Jesus talked about the great banquet. So food and meals were kind of a part of any kind of, any kind of gathering in which something was to be celebrated. Now, Isaac here initiates his own agenda. He calls Esau in and he says, Esau, I want you to go out. I want you to hunt. I want you to find that venison, that wild game, bring it back to me so that I may eat and bless you. Now, I want you to look at Genesis 25, verse 23. You remember this? In verse 20, chapter 25, verse 23, you remember when Rebekah had such turmoil in her womb that she finally said, what's wrong with me? What's going on inside of me? And the Bible said that she went to inquire of the Lord and God said, he said, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other. Now look at that next phrase there. What does it say? And the older will serve the younger. One writer said this about Isaac. Though Isaac knew God's will for Esau and Jacob, he did this. I love what he said. He said he boxed with God and he lost. He knew God's will, but he not only ignored it, he began to work against it. I wrote this down. In fact, it's something to think about. Isaac had his own plan, his own agenda. He knew God's will. He knew the word of God, but he he begins to go against it. You will never outbox, outsmart God. I can tell you that. 
Let me tell you how I know that from experience. Because sooner or later in our lives, we come to a point where God's will may be so painful, so difficult, that we may find ourselves wanting to rebel against His will and even His Word. I wrote this down because it's so true. Listen, sometimes you and I think that God will make an exception. You ever think sometimes, well, you know, regardless, I'm... I'm kind of a little more spiritual than everybody else, or I'm kind of a little bit special, and so God may make an exception in my case, but He doesn't make an exception in nobody's case. Now, in verse five through, verses 5 through 10, the, the Bible says here that who's listening? Rebecca. Who does that sound like? Sarah. You remember she was in the tent over listening in on Abraham's conversation with the angel of the Lord, with the angels. Rebecca is listening, she's spying, and she's taking notes. I want you to look at something. It's little, but look at verse 5. In verse 5, she said, now Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to what? His son. When Esau, uh, when Isaac spoke to his son Esau, when Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son, Jacob. It almost sounds like the twins were his and her towels. <laughs> Sheila and I sometimes would do that. She'd say, and I'll be talking about that in a moment. You take the boys, I got the girls. I always felt like I got the bad end of the deal. <laughs> John Phillips said this. He said, the situation displayed, displayed in Genesis 27 did not develop in a single day. It had its roots when Esau and Jacob were born and when Isaac and Rebekah each chose a favorite son. In that deadly favoritism was sown the seed now exhibited in full flower. You know, every parent knows what I'm talking about. You ever get accused of showing favoritism? Favorites? Uh, you know, Dwayne, you're laughing because it's true. I remember one time when the kids were small, Emily came in. Emily and I had been somewhere, and Emily had a bag of M&Ms. And immediately, they began an uprising, a revolt in the house. How dare you, Dad, buy her M&Ms? Where's my M&Ms? And I said, she got M&Ms because she's special. I just kind of played along with it. Listen to this quote here. It is the danger of any family to gravitate toward the smart child or the athletic child or the one that seems how to know to pull how to pull mom's heartstrings to dote over the youngest who's the new arrival while the middle child is back there looking through the photo album trying to see if there's even a picture of them. Right? Why did Isaac favor Esau? You know, when I thought about that, because man, this chapter's made me heavy. I mean, this is a sad chapter. And you think, well, why did Esau, Esau why did Isaac favor Esau? Maybe it was because Esau was what he was not. 
When you look at Isaac and you realize the age of Abraham and Sarah and you look at a certain point when Ishmael even makes fun of, of Isaac, you get the feeling, was this a child that was protected, spoiled, coddled, you know, in such a way that, that, he, that he never felt like a man? And when Esau comes along, Esau is a man's man. He's everything that Isaac wasn't. Sometimes parents will gravitate toward a child because that child may be what they never were. Or it may be that Isaac and Esau were just alike. Esau was just a chip off the old block, like father or like son. Phillips goes on to make this statement about favoritism. He said, Isaac, listen to this because this is critical parent. Isaac loved Esau not because he was a holy man of God, not because he walked the pilgrim way, but because he did eat of his venison. Wow. Some parents so desire their child's academic prowess or their athletic ability or their looks or whatever it may be, they do that at the expense of their spiritual development. Some parents affirm these worldly traits and characteristics in the lives of their children rather than their spiritual development, and no wonder. Let me give you an example. Today, probably, but in most cases, soccer is now played Sunday morning at 8 o'clock. And there are multitudes of families and people who will be out there screaming and hollering their affirmation while their children are running up and down kicking a ball when most of them will one day put that ball away and never pick it up again, and they will never develop spiritually. They affirm, they brag on, they carry on about a child's academics, athletic ability while neglecting. Wow, listen to this. Isaac mentioned savory meat six times. He mentioned venison seven times. He mentioned eating Eight times, over 20 references to appetite. He acts as if he's in a trance when Esau comes in and he smells, or when when Jacob comes in and he smells his garments. Isaac was a man that was driven by appetite. Now let me ask you something, test question here. Take out a half sheet of paper. No, I'm joking. When Esau gave up his birthright, what did he give up his birthright for? Food. A bowl of soup. Who does Esau sound like? Isaac. You see, what Isaac valued, what he put worth on, is exactly what Esau mirrored. In fact, what drives the home, what drives the family, what drives the children is usually dad. Let me give you some dangers in parenting, some observations here. We just stop and do this. Number one, why do parents mess up? Why do we mess up? And young parents listen to me, and hopefully because we're low today, there'll be people listening on the website Number one, we are prodding kids sometimes to achieve and fulfill the aspirations, the dreams, the desires of ourselves as parents rather than what is God's will for their life. Justin Bieber 
has been in the news over and over again. But it's interesting that it was his mother who put his picture before the world, his video before the world, and pushed and prodded him to where he is today, a mixed-up, confused drug addict. In the last couple of weeks, we've seen Whitney Houston's daughter, who was found face down in, a tub, in her tub, in a tub of water. They were doing CPR. They've carried her to the hospital. Right now, she's on life support. I wonder if we could go back to three and a half years ago, sit Whitney Houston down and say, Whitney, this is not only your bondage, this will be the bondage of your child. Let me tell you something about Alan's sermon. If you as a parent refuse to come to terms with the bondage, whatever it may be that holds you in bondage, you can be rest assured chances are your children will mirror that bondage. Imagine three and a half years ago if you could have looked at Whitney Houston and said, Whitney, wake up! Because this daughter is going down the same road you're going down. Number two, a danger in parenting, a mistake we often make is that we lose our identity in the identity of our children. And that's especially true today in America. A parent becomes so consumed in the life of their child, even a grown child, that they begin to lose their identity. They become dysfunctional, broken, codependent. They begin to draw their sense of worth or self-worth from their child. They feel like somebody because their child is somebody. Your identity and my identity is in nothing but who we are in Jesus Christ. Mom gets her identity from the fact that her little girl is a beauty queen or the high school heartthrob or a cheerleader. Dad gets his identity from the fact that his son or his daughter is somebody academically gifted. And let me tell you what God will do, parent. When you and I begin to find our worth and our our value in the life of our children... He will rip from your hands and my hands the very idol that we hold. Let me tell you, kids can become an idol. You may say, well, how do I know they're an idol? Because when I come into your home and I can't carry on a conversation because of your kids, then that's the point of where they're in the wrong place. You see, it's a problem in our our society. There's a truth here. Your value, your worth is in Jesus Christ, not in the success or the failure of your children. Sometimes you feel like, and the enemy uses this, because see, once you go down that road, it can backfire on you. As long as they're successful, everything's all right, you feel good. But what if they botch it, or they fail, or they fall along the way? Then all of a sudden you think, oh, what a horrible man or woman I am. What a horrible parent I am. I just can't even go to church anymore. Let me remind you of something. God's not done too good with his kids. Adam and Eve rebelled against him. Adam and Eve didn't do any good. Cain killed Abel. I don't know about you. Have you had a sibling murder another one yet? Noah cursed one of his after coming out of a drunken stupor. Absalom tried to overthrow David. And I could go on and on. So let me say to you, parent, listen to me, young parent, do not put your children in that position. Thirdly, the danger of parenting today is that we do so by fear and rather than faith. 
And I think that may be the biggest problem of all today. We parent by fear. We walk by faith. We don't walk by fear, but sometimes we parent by fear. And let me tell you what you do when you parent by fear. You control everything and you control your child. And you control them to the degree that you become overprotective. And eventually what happens is like a dog on a chain. They begin to snap and to bite and come back at you. If fear governs your parenting, you'll be overprotective. You'll be consumed with controlling their lives because that's the only way you can control your anxiety. Some of you have grown children who have families. I suggest that you get your sons and daughters to listen to this message on the website. And it can happen quickly, young parents. You know, I wrote this down. Kids are more vulnerable than they've ever been to sin, to predators, to lie, to the internet, social media, bullying, philosophical positions, and a worldview that is no longer Judeo-Christian. And a lot of times what parents will do is they're so afraid now. They'll say, well, what do I do? And this is what I say. Hey, do the same thing Amram and Jochebed did when they brought up Moses. I guarantee one thing, their situation was not or your situation is not any worse than theirs. When I was living in Zimbabwe, I thought it was like a breath of fresh air because I could let my kids do whatever they wanted to. They could play, they could run the streets, but we don't live in that environment today. When I grew up, I rode my bike literally from the subdivision that I lived in all the way across town, all the way across Titusville, and I'd go out to the, I'd go out to the piers and talk to the fishermen and the people on those piers. I had an old cement mixer that I turned into a boat, went through the orange groves, down up under the interstate, and went out on Indian River and the only thing that stopped me from going any farther was that NASA had a fence across there and you couldn't go any farther. Didn't mean to spit that much, but... (laughs) Now, Now, let me say here, because I want to speak to moms specifically. And the only way I can say is moms, fasten your pew belts. I want you to look at verse 8. Because when you look at verse 8, what Rebecca says to Jacob is this, Now my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. Boy, that's always a mistake. Because this was a grown man. Go out to the flock, bring me two choice young goats so I can prepare some tasty food for your father. And she goes through all the details. In other words, let me say this about Rebecca. Ladies, listen to me. Rebecca was a no-nonsense, straightforward, doesn't mess around, strong, bold, daring, decisive woman. And she was a spiritual woman. In fact, if you remember when Abraham sent his servant Eliezer and he said, listen, I want you to go back to Ur, I want you to go back to the place of the Chaldeans. I want you to go back to that home place and I want you to speak to my lineage and my family and I want you to find a bride for Isaac. Do you remember when Eliezer got there and he said, Lord, if this is the one, she's going to not only offer to, to give me a drink, she's going to water 10 camels, 20 gallons or whatever it is. It was 200 gallons plus of water. And you remember when, when Rebecca came out, she watered, she offered him water, watered all the camels. And then when she went back, do you remember they had a discussion and, and Eliezer told him about his prayer, told him about Father Abraham, how he'd sent him to find a bride. And do you remember at a certain point, uh, they looked at, at, at Rebecca and they said, Rebecca, are you willing to go? Now listen, when Rebecca leaves, 
leaves, that's it. She won't, she's going a long distance, never to see her family again. You know what Rebecca says? Tomorrow morning, I'm leaving. Wow. You remember when I preached on that, we said, boy, that, that looks like you and I when it comes to the church. But there's only one problem. In this passage right here, though she is a spiritual woman, a woman who's decisive and clear, she's wrong. You may say, well, wait a minute. She was right. Jacob was the rightful heir. But she was wrong. Her method was wrong. You may think that's not a big thing to God, but I want to remind you of something. God told Moses, he said, Moses, I've heard the cry of my people and I'm sending you. But do you know how Moses saw his ability to, to set free the Hebrews was to murder one of them, cover it up. You remember when David brought the Ark of the Covenant and was bringing it back to Jerusalem? As good, as good a gesture as that was, you know what he did? He said, I'm going to take it by an ox-drawn cart and God said, I'll, I'll kill anyone that touches that Ark. And you remember that came that moment moment when the, when the oxen stumbled as they're going toward Jerusalem and one of those men reached and immediately he dropped dead because God said, listen, the ground's more holy than his hand. And you remember what happened to David? David got, here's a great spiritual giant. Here, listen, is the king of Israel, the writer of many of our songs, who was angry at God. And God said, listen, you've got the right motive, but your heart, you got the, you got the right motive, but you're going about it the wrong way. Mom, listen to me. Dad, listen to me. Sometimes you can have the right motive, but you're going about it the wrong way. If you look at Rebecca and you begin to look at some of the lessons, you know, this, this is a woman who literally, she was, I believe she was a godly, great woman. I wrote this down and it's a mistake that women can make sometimes. And I know I'm preaching to women today. But women can be strong, they can be authoritative, but they can carry it too far and they can overshadow their husband. You can recognize that kind of woman. We laughed at um, somebody like Harriet Olson. She was obvious. She was the authority. Nails was subservient to her. You know, you see marriages like that sometimes where the woman runs everything. You know, men joke around about it afterwards. They'll say, you know, they'll, they'll kind of make men, you wonder what we talk about? That's the things we talk about. And this kind of woman is the kind of woman when she says jump, her husband looks like a skier getting ready to go off the lift. <laughs> How high, dear? You see, we're living in a day today where the role of dad, the, the masculinity of men is, is under attack like it's never been before. In the South, we tend to be matriarchal. This is true in the African-American community. The African-American community tends to be matriarchal. What do you mean by that? That means that mom, if mom ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. The reality is, is that sometimes mom, if we're not careful in this culture, what can happen is that mom becomes the authority. Ladies, let me say this. It's still wrong. 
That man will never man up. Some of you are the greatest deterrent to your husband being the man that God would have him to be. And it's not just simply a strong, authoritative woman. Sometimes, secondly, women can be, they can appear to be submissive. But in reality, they're the authority. Under the disguise of, submissive, of a submissive spirit or a spiritual spirit, and I think this was Rebecca. Rebecca, under a spiritual cloak, was in all honesty destroying her family. You know what startled me? When I read this, I couldn't believe it. I even pulled out the concordance. I said, this can't be true. Do you know how many references are made to this great woman of God? And do you know what it is? One, when they bury her. Some women are authoritative, and it's very clear that they're authority. And some women tend to be uh, under the disguise of being submissive or being spiritual. And this was Rebecca. This is a woman who sometimes will, women who correct their husband. Man says something, she starts correcting him or excusing him or explaining him. And while she's affecting and ruining her testimony... She's affecting his ability to be the man that God has called him to be. This was Rebecca. She appeared to be spiritual while she was undermining her husband. In verse 13, you ought to dog ear that, underline it, turn the page down in your Bibles, ladies, because his mother says to him, when Jacob begins to pull back and Jacob says, Mom, listen, if I do this, there's a strong possibility that instead of blessing me, he's going to curse me. His mom raises up and she says, My son, let the curse fall on me. Just do what I say. Go and get them for me. And let me tell you, look this way. In the Hebrew, when she said, get them for me, she was telling a grown man who may have been over 70 years of age, get out there and do what I told you to do. Whew. She, I, I, I wrote this down. This was Rebecca appearing spiritual while undermining her husband. And what she was saying was this. Listen to this, ladies. I'll deal with dad and God. She thought herself so spiritual that she would deal with anyone or anything that got in her way. She forgot that the feeble, blind old man in the tent was still to be respected and submitted to. Where was hupotasso here? That Greek word for submission coming under the authority. She said, she said this. Let me tell you how she probably said it. She looked at him and her blood pressure went out of the roof. This spiritual giant said, let that curse be on me. You just do what I told you to do. My friend, hear me. She never saw Jacob again. Esau moved to Seir, moved to Edom, and she probably never saw him again. And in the end, this great spiritual giant was not even respected by her own husband and by her own community. There are times when moms feel justified in keeping back information from dad. 
working around him, that one they have been called to submit to. And they'll make those statements, don't tell your dad, or listen to this one, we won't tell your dad. Well, what about God? Let me give you a principle. The danger is at a home, is a home where dad is not the authority and neither is God. Mom becomes the authority in every way and even spiritually. Rebecca was spiritually passionate about God and yet her, and his will, but her methods were wrong. She made the mistake of taking the role of the Holy Spirit and there was a high cost to that. Listen to what one writer said, when a woman takes the role of leadership in the home, it is not long before she will be seeking to take the role of leadership everywhere else. The greatest heartache, listen to what this writer said, the greatest heartache is to use that self-perceived authority that has been developing in the home to manipulate your own desires in the life of your husband, the life of your children, your friends, and worse, those authorities that God has put over you to watch over your soul. I was talking to a young, young woman this past week. I was talking about submission. She's not a member of this church. And I looked at her and I said, if I called Sheila right now and said, Sheila, we're leaving tomorrow for Zimbabwe. We're going to say goodbye to the kids, the grandkids. We're going to, I'm going to send word to the deacons. We're leaving tomorrow for Zimbabwe. I said, what do you think Sheila would do? This young lady, beautiful young lady, leaned across the table where I was, where I was counseling her. And she said, she smiled and said she would be packing Sarah followed Abraham and called him Lord. Wow. I wrote this down and I have to close in a moment. Rebecca is the spiritual leader in her home, not openly, but under the surface, controlling and manipulating just like Sarah with Hagar. More so in the life of her son Jacob. Listen to this. She is trying to do the right thing and in the end... She does the wrong thing. And do you know what God has to do with Jacob? God has to take Jacob away from Rebecca in order for him to be the man that God would call him to be. She never saw Jacob again. I could go on... Genesis 25, 27 said that uh, Jacob hung around the tents and I could say to you, Mom, listen to me. You let Dad be involved in the raising of that son. Sheila and I had two boys and two girls and a lot of times I would, I literally, I would be trying to leave out of the house, pushing the truck, not cranking it up, pushing it up the driveway, sneaking, trying to get away. And Sheila would say, Whoa, wait a minute. She'd come out there, Whoa, wait a minute. Boys want to go with you. Now, I knew them boys didn't want to go with me. They weren't even awake. <laughs> boys want to go with you. Hang on a minute. And buddy, they'd be sleepy out in their pajamas and they're dragging them up the driveway. <laughs> now, I want you to listen to me. Why? Because a dad, regardless of our society, a dad is pivotal to the family. 
The bottom line is this country is coming apart at the seams. This community is coming apart at the seams. Entire cities are coming apart at the seams because of the failure of the dad to be the dad. That's it. Now let me close with this. Alan preached last week about bondage. And Alan said that, uh, he said when he looked at, when he was finally made to look at those two bricks, it was fear and approval. Is that right? Fear and approval. And you may say, well, what does that have to do with this sermon? It has everything to do with this sermon because let me tell you how we overcome fear and let me tell you how we have approval. D-A-D, Dad. That's it. We need the affirmation, the approval. We need the support of Dad. When Dad looks at a child and says, I'm, I'm proud of you, you watch that kid. He, it's just something different about that because he desires it. Now let me say something to those of you in here that are considering ministry. Until you settle that, you're not ready to be a minister. You're not. Now let me tell you why. In Acts chapter 5 verse 29, do you know what Peter said to the religious people of his day? He said, do we obey God or man? In Galatians, in fact, let me read this because it it is so critical. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, You know what Paul said? He said, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. When you you enter the ministry, people will try to determine what you preach, how you preach, what you're saying, what you do. They'll try to determine everything about you. And I'm telling you this much, if you're driven by fear and approval and you need affirmation from a congregation, you will struggle throughout your entire ministry. Is that not true? For Alan, for Doug, for for Reggie, some of these, for Stan, some of these, for Ledge, some of these people that have been involved in either staff position or some kind of oversight of people spiritually or have stood in this sacred office. If you come here even to preach and you seek the approval and the affirmation of you, Paul said you will no longer be a doulos, a slave, a servant of Christ. Because I want you to listen to me, and this is critical, and it has to do with blessing. And I wrote it down. The danger is when you desire someone's approval, now listen to this, they now have authority over you, and more so God's call on your life to lead. Now you want to please them rather than God. You desire their approval over God's approval. They become the authority in your life. And this is the real tragedy. Their approval is conditional on whether you obey their observations or suggestions or dictates. These are people who feel a certain level of spiritual prominence to where they begin to tell you how to live and what to do. And you say, that won't happen to me. Matthew 16, 13 through 19. Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Man, hell trembled. He was a spokesman of the disciples. But in that moment, in a matter of seconds, God would be saying, get thee behind me, Satan, you're an offense. Peter, this great man of God, would be used by the enemy to get in the way of the cross. 
I wrote it down. People will always test this. And I believe there's a call on Alan's life. And I want to affirm that publicly after listening to that message. And I believe there's a, I believe there's a, there's a call on other men in this room spiritually. But listen to this. People will always test this. They'll withhold their approval. Southside strength has always been that when it comes to this platform, no one, no one interferes with what the Holy Spirit is trying to do. In other words, you may come to me and you may say, Brother Jeff, you've not preached on the family in a while. Would you mind addressing the issue of the husband and wife? I, hey, I'll deal with that. You know, I can listen to suggestions, but be very careful. Now, parents, and then we'll close. Dad, your kids need your blessing. They need your love. They need your affirmation. They need your approval. They need your acceptance. And when they don't get it, they stumble through life looking for it anywhere and everywhere. And the bottom line is, is that fear and approval become the dictate of the life because they never got it from the one they needed to get it from. If a child desires dad's approval, most likely they one day will desire God's approval. Because let me give you something, and you may not like it, and you may say, I don't agree with it, but the bottom line is a child's perception and understanding of God is based primarily on their relationship between father and child. In Ephesians 5.21 through Ephesians 6.4, the only word of warning giving given. When God talks about wives, he talks about husbands. Wives submit, hupatasso, husbands love your wife. He goes through all the dictates. Then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, when he turns to the children, he says, fathers, don't you aspirate. Don't you, don't you provoke that child to wrath. What he was saying is, Father, you accept them and love them and affirm them and give them approval because if they don't have that then they struggle. Amy called the other day, or one of the kids called, and um, or sent me something. And they, they said, Dad, what do you think? And I said, it's real nice. And then I looked at Sheila and I said, I don't really like it. <laughs> Sheila said, well, why didn't you say that? They wanted your opinion. I looked at her and said, no, they don't. They want my approval. Jacob will finally get the blessing. He'll get it in Genesis 32, and it's one of the most pivotal chapters in all the Bible. Because when we find Jacob again, when God, the angel of the Lord, you remember the angel of the Lord, Jacob, this is Jacob. He's clinging. He's wrapped himself. He's like a child wrapped around the leg of a dad. He's wrapped himself to the point the angel of the Lord says, let me go. And Jacob looks at, at the angel of the Lord and he said, I won't let you go until you do what? Until you bless me. And the angel of the Lord said, you'll no longer be called Jacob under underhanded, dishonest, deceiver, deceiver, trickster, liar, the name your dad gave you, your mom impressed into your life. That's not you. You'll be called Israel, 
for you have wrestled with the Lord and prevailed. Let's stand. God's blessing, God's approval comes only through Jesus Christ. That's it. You may be here today and you say, Pastor, I didn't have a good dad. I didn't get that blessing. I didn't get that affirmation. I didn't get that approval. My friend, everything dad did not give you, Christ automatically, yes, 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 yes. There it is. I love you. I approve of you. I affirm you. You're mine unconditionally. It's not based on your performance. It's the fact that I just love you because I love you so much. I sent my son, Jesus Christ. Our identity, our blessings are found in Christ. But I'm warning parents and I'm warning parents on the website. Parent, listen to me closely. You've got a narrow window of opportunity. Young parent, you've got a narrow window of opportunity. And once that window closes, it's gone. And you may say, well, I'm, I'm an adult. my kids are adult now. They're just about adult. Then listen, you go sit down no matter where you have to go. You go sit down with them and you look at them eyeball to eyeball and you say, listen, I failed you. I've done some things that I'm ashamed of. I've not been the kind of leader that I need to be. And I've repented before God and I'm coming to repent before you. Forgive me. Forgive me. And give everything to Christ. There's a narrow window, parent. Last, uh, was it last week? I'm a Seattle, Seattle Seahawks fan. Now, the only reason I am is because I like Russell Wilson. And he's a strong professing Christian. When at the end of that game, Curse made that bouncing, juggling catch on the five-yard line. Tom Brady went, he just did like that. And I thought, we got this thing in the bag. We're going into beast mode now. And Marshawn Lynch, he's just going to pound it right on in there. And so they handed it off to Marshawn Lynch, and he went to the one-yard line, four yards on his first carry. I said, boy, this is as good as done. Man, I was, already, I was already doubling up on the corn dip, Sheila, dump dip Sheila made for me and my dad. Man, I, I was getting really excited. Man, yeah, we, we won this. And man, uh, man, I could see everybody getting excited and celebrating. When all of a sudden, they called the second play, the second down. And the next thing I knew, Russell Wilson goes back and the man cuts across and he throws it and it's intercepted. I mean, I'm, I'm standing up looking at the TV. I'm like all of America. I'm in shock. This is Pete Carroll. Uh, Sherman looked like he was going to cry. Pete Carroll just did, Pete Carroll did like this. And all over America, people were asking and around the world were asking, what was he thinking? And listen, she, Sheila, I said, cut it off, cut it off, cut it off. <laughs> Put it on another channel. And, and they'd show it over and over and over and over again. I said, cut it off, cut it off. I don't want to see it. And I thought 
that night, I thought the next day, I thought how often Pete Carroll thinks to himself, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? Why didn't I just give it to Marshawn Lynch? Why didn't I just go into beast mode? And I want you to listen to this word. It's a painful word, parent. Regret. For the rest of Pete Carroll's life, he will live with a measure of regret for the decision that he made to throw it rather than to hand it off. Let me tell you a greater regret is when a parent looks at a child and says, my God, what have I done? The opportunities, I didn't take them to church, didn't read the Bible, didn't pray over them, carrying them to the soccer field, carrying them to football, baseball, carrying them everywhere but the church. I was instilling into them something more important than their walk with God. It was, if you succeed academically, athletically, if you do this, if you do that, then I'll give you the blessing. And that's why they can't find peace in their salvation even now. They're still trying to get the approval of the Father. The greatest regret though of all is to one day being in eternity separated from God. A God who loves you and sent His Son Jesus to take the penalty of your sin and my sin, nail it to the cross a God has provided every opportunity for you to come to Him. A God who has, is standing ready to receive you right now. The greatest regret of all is to be in hell and to never be able to play that play, that decision, that moment again. Do you know Him? heads bowed and with eyes closed. Lord, we just come to you. Lord, I have been heavy all week. I haven't slept well. I've been up early. I was up today. I didn't sleep good last night. Genesis 27. I agree with John Phillips. Maybe one of the saddest chapters, not only in Genesis, but in the entire Bible. God, so many people doing wrong and thinking that they were doing right. Father, I pray, dear Lord, today that if there's any in this room that, Lord, right now that you've spoken to them, maybe it's in their role as a wife or a husband, maybe it's in their role as a parent, maybe it's in their role, dear Lord, today as, a, as just a believer and a member of this church, I pray, dear Lord, that you would speak to them. I pray, dear Lord, that one day there would not be that regret. Lord, I pray for parents that I, I know, dear Lord, feel like they're carrying the weight of the world. I know they feel sometimes overwhelmed. But Lord, may they understand that what they value, what they put their worth in, most likely will be what their children value and what they put their worth in. May we value spiritual things. Most of all, may our worth come in our identity in Christ Jesus. We pray, dear Lord, for those that may be here that are lost, that they may come today. I pray for those that are, they may listen on the website, Lord, if there's anyone here 
I always remember a woman who pulled her vehicle over in Texas and said, I've got to get right. My husband's got to get right. Father, I don't know what you may be saying, what you may do, but I pray, dear Lord, that you will use this message for your glory. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.